I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Few people know more about public health threats and how the U.S. government should deal with them than Ron Klain. In 2014, Klain was tapped by President Obama to be the White House Ebola czar when there were widespread concerns about how the country was responding to outbreaks of the disease emanating from West Africa. Before that, he served as chief of staff to two vice presidents, Al Gore and Joe Biden, and he's now a top advisor to Biden's campaign. We'll talk to Klain about the coronavirus crisis and how Donald Trump's White House has handled it on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Okay, Isikoff, I think people are really not going to be all that interested in hearing us yammer on about this subject this time because we have such a great guest, Ron Klain, who was the former Obama administration, Ebola czar, has spent many years in government, in the White House, uh, on the Hill. I've known Ron, I think he was since he was the 27-year-old chief counsel to Joe Biden when he was just, uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is a guy, kind of a rare figure in Washington, who is uh, kind of expert on politics, governing and policy, so kind of a triple threat, and has been incredibly eloquent and said a lot of really important things on on this current crisis that we're dealing with, someone who I think the Trump administration would like to have had as part of their arsenal. Yeah, and uh, we should point out that he's also would be at the top of anybody's list to take a senior position, very senior position, I would think, in any future Biden administration, assuming that uh, Biden wins the election in the fall. You know, it's very interesting. When he was tapped to be Ebola czar, there was actually some criticism from Republicans on Capitol Hill who said, well, you know, Klain's really a political operative. Uh, He doesn't have the necessary background for this. And there was one quote that really leapt out at me. I came across this is back from 2014, of course. And this from Ted Cruz. We don't need another so-called czar. We need presidential leadership. This is a public health crisis. That was Cruz talking about Ebola in 2014. But I think the words might well apply to um, where we are right now with uh, coronavirus. I think so. And, you know, uh, look, people, I'm sure, also said that you need a medical doctor in a position like that, which, of course, uh, Mike Pence isn't, who is now the coronavirus czar inside the White House, even if that's not 
a term that this president uses. But uh, look, Ron Klain is someone who has an enormous amount of experience dealing with this. And I think uh, people would be uh, wise to listen to this whole conversation. I'm sure it's going to be a really good one. So let's get to it. Hey, wait a second, Isakoff. Before we go, I just want to put in a plug for Ron's new podcast on coronavirus, which he co-hosts with Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. For anyone who wants to know where this pandemic is going, what needs to be done to contain its spread, the politics of the crisis, and how families and communities can prepare for it, Epidemic is a must-listen wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on with the show. We're really pleased to have Ron Klain on the podcast. Uh, No one knows more about the complexities of the government response to a pandemic than Ron, who served as President Obama's Ebola czar, and before that was chief of staff to both Vice Presidents Al Gore and Joe Biden, and has been a longtime political advisor to Biden, who today is the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. So, Ron, welcome to Skullduggery. Welcome back to Skullduggery, I should say. Yes, I am pleased to make my second appearance on Skullduggery. <laughs> the second of many, we trust. <laughs> right. I hope, I yeah. hope. So listen, here we are. We're, we're all uh, recording this podcast from home in various forms of isolation. Apparently, we're close to four months out since the outbreak of this disease, since the first case in, in China. So give us your sense of the, the current state of play. What are your biggest concerns at this moment? What are we now beginning to get right? What are we still not doing? And what are you really most worried about going forward? Well, you know, we're really at the inflection point here where this disease is really going to explode in the U.S. Uh, We're having this conversation on March 19 when we're looking at about 8,000 cases. It's been doubling every three days. And that number will even accelerate further as we finally start to get some testing on the line and we start to really understand how big a problem we have. And I think it's a very big problem. In terms of where that problem is going to first really crash on the shores, it's really going to hit us in our hospitals and in our healthcare system. We have a healthcare system that runs pretty much at full capacity uh, under normal circumstances. And particularly right now at the end of flu season, things like ventilators, respirators, emergency room beds, care for respiratory patients is already straining the system. And then you add hundreds, thousands of intensely ill patients to that And we're going to see dire consequences in our hospitals. We're going to see that in terms of hospitals running out of beds to treat patients. We're going to see that when we're seeing that already in terms of medical professionals having to reuse protective gear, running out of masks in hospitals, running out of the basic necessities needed to treat patients. And that's kind of what's coming here in the days ahead. That'll have impact not only on our response to the coronavirus, of course it will, but on all kinds of medical problems. There's a hospital in Philadelphia that this week shut down its labor and delivery ward because all the labor and delivery nurses had coronavirus. So we're going to see this as healthcare workers get sick, as hospitals get filled, it's going to have an impact on all aspects of our healthcare delivery in the United States. We are certainly in this conversation going to get into a discussion about how we ended up in this dire situation, woefully unprepared, it seems, to deal with this threat. But I want to ask you, because I think our listeners really care about this, what can be done right now to deal with this problem? In other words, what are we doing uh, to get 
the tests online, to get the ventilators and the respirators online. What can the federal government do? I saw that the president, I think, reluctantly signed uh, the Defense Production Act to get the private sector to bring more medical supplies online. What else can be done? What needs to be done right now? Well, first, let's be clear. We're in this mess because we didn't do enough to prepare for this mess when we had ample warning signs that it was coming. And so what can be done right now are things can be done now that will help us a couple of weeks from now. But these things, even if they move quickly, do take time. And therefore, we're really going to face the next couple of weeks uh, in a big mess. Now, what should we do now? First of all, we need to get control of the supply chain. So to date, the Trump administration has taken a laissez-faire approach to the supply chain. President Trump told governors basically, hey, go out there and find supplies as you can, as opposed to working with the private sector and the big producers to route the supplies to the places where they're needed the most. As a result, the supplies are going to wind up in the hospitals that have the best relationships with the producers. Those may be hospitals that really need them urgently. They may not be hospitals that really need them urgently. This disease is hitting different cities at different times. We need supply chain coordination. Secondly, we obviously need to ramp up production. And there are still stories about producers not being given orders by the government to really expand production. They will only expand production if they know the government will purchase what they make. And so we have an agency in the government called BARDA, supposed to guarantee those purchases. We have a part of the government led by the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Readiness that's supposed to coordinate all this. And that needs to happen to kind of stimulate that production, get that going. And then uh, we need to get a little more organized around this question of testing. Uh, This has been the number one thing that people have flagged from day one, where the administration has just totally dropped the ball. And in some ways, it's too late to be fixed because the main purpose of testing in January, in February, was to identify where the disease was and isolate it before it spread wildly. Now it's spread. Uh, Hopes of isolating it seem very remote. We still need testing to figure out who has it and who doesn't have it so we can help the people who have it, so we can kind of keep the people who don't have it as way as much as possible from people who do have it. And so that needs to be fixed by what the administration is doing, gearing up the private labs, but also getting testing to the public health departments. We still have major states where they don't have the test supplies, they don't have the, the reagents to run the tests, they don't have the RNA extraction materials to run the tests. And that means that people aren't getting tested. And when they're getting tested, they're waiting days, literally days for the results. Uh, and that backup needs to be cleared. You started out by saying uh, this is going to explode. Right now, actually, uh, you said that we have you know, more than 8,000 cases. Johns Hopkins this morning is uh, putting the figure at 9,477 with 155 deaths. So the, the numbers you know, creep up by the hour. But looking forward to over the next month, two months, three months, Um, Where do you see those numbers and how sustainable is it to have people basically self-quarantined in their homes, social distancing, uh, and uh, almost a complete shutdown of economic activity? Well, so uh, two great questions there, Mike. Let's let's break them down. So where is this going to go? I think certainly for the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to see this doubling every few days and perhaps even faster than that as we test people and we really know that we had more cases all along than we believed. And why is that? That's because the things we're starting to do now, people staying at home, people uh, not going to work, all those things, they will reduce cases 
two weeks from now, but the people who are getting sick today got sick two weeks ago when we were all at work, we were all out shopping and doing the things we were doing. So anything we're doing now, that's affecting the future, not affecting the immediate next couple of days, next couple of weeks. One hopes that if these measures are in place and effective, they'll start to see this doubling every three days slow down a bit. But I think that won't happen for a while. These measures are incomplete. What's a while? What's a while? I think we're going to be at, I think we're going to be at, at this level of activity well in through April into May. If we're really successful at social distancing, maybe it stops a little, maybe it bends a little bit sooner, but certainly through April, probably into May. And even once it starts to bend, right? I mean, we think about curves. Once the curve starts to come down, you know, the day after the curve comes down, it's still the second worst day ever, right? It's a curve and and on the backside of the curve, even as we start to get the thing under control, we're still having a lot of cases. So we don't know. And so one other thing to add on that, Mike, is that everyone's seen on the internet, the flatten the curve, memes and graphs and charts. And so, you know, what that's about is trying to avoid this giant spike all at once that really crashes the healthcare system and use these social mitigation measures to lower the peak. Lowering the peak means extending the duration. When you look at those charts, which you see the one with the big peak really goes up quickly and comes down quickly. The flatten the curve thing, the thing we're aiming for makes this last longer. Uh, less severe at any one point in time, but longer. And so in some ways, if what we're doing works, this will be worth us, with us for a longer period of time. The second question Mike asked was how long we can sustain these uh, draconian measures. And I want to add to that, which is, well, maybe we're not doing enough. I mean, you know, everyone's been talking about the Asian countries and how well many of them res- responded to this crisis. That's in part because they were much more aggressive than we've been to this date. I mean, you know, total travel bans, uh, mandated quarantines, uh, very aggressive testing and and contact tracing. I mean, countries like Taiwan and Hong Kong, where people who have tested positive have to wear a wristband or a track through their cell phones. Do we need to actually go much further than we've gone? So I think we need to be clear about what's worked. It's a range of measures. Not all of them are more authoritarian than what we've done. Obviously, in China, it has been a crackdown like that. Singapore actually had even less social distancing than we have, even less rigorous lockdowns than we have had, and brought the disease under control better and faster by doing the things we screwed up, which was testing and identifying chains of transmission and using traditional public health measures, the kind of measures we used in fighting Ebola, where you see who has it, where they're spreading it, getting those people contacted, isolating those people. You know, that's what we should have done So it's not a choice between kind of freedom and authoritarianism, liberty and oppression. You know, good public health would have played a big role, and we still need to catch up on that. I think we also have to recognize that there's only so much of the country we can lock down. If we're going to sit in our homes and order in meals, like someone has to make those meals and deliver them to us. If our homes are going to have electricity and we're going to have cell phone service, we're going to have Wi-Fi and we're going to have water. People are going every day to the electric plant, the water plant, the cell phone, uh, the cell towers, and, and so on and so forth. For every one of us at home, there are many people out in the world making it possible for us to be at home. And so, you know, a complete, complete lockdown in a country that is highly developed, where we can't go in the backyard and pick corn and, you know, cook it ourselves over our open fire, where we are reliant on all these things, not to mention all the healthcare workers, all the 
people taking care of people, senior citizens in the nursing homes and senior centers, all these things. We are always going to be a country with a lot of people out and about. So what we're going to have to do is try to, again, flatten the curve. Those of us who can isolate and distance need to do it because it, it not only protects us, it actually lessens the risk to all of us who can't do those things. But just to add on that, the uh, human toll that the economic contraction is going to take uh, seems to me, uh, and I'm sure to a lot of people, as enormous. There were lots of people who were living from paycheck to paycheck, as Bernie Sanders kept reminding us during debates. Uh, before all this started, uh, you add the shrinkage in the economy and the shutdown on top of that, it gets all that worse and then you know side effects uh crime you know what what do kids who are out of school with nothing to do do with themselves it just seems that the you know in some ways i'm just wondering if we're giving enough thought and planning to the economic consequences of the shutdown we're all experiencing well i mean obviously that's uh, a thing that's on a lot of people's minds it's a thing that's on congress's mind is that churns away on an economic recovery package, a stimulus package that hopefully will move quickly. I was involved a lot in the recovery package in 2008, 2009. Took Congress kind of months to put it together, begrudging almost straight party line votes. And so here the test will be, will Congress act more quickly and on a more bipartisan basis to do something more immediately? And, uh, you know, there's some signs that will happen. That would be a good thing. But there's no question that the impact, even if Congress does a vote in the next few days or weeks to send everyone a thousand dollar check and to make loans to small businesses to help them meet their payrolls and provide relief to certain hardest hit sectors like the airlines and hotels and whatnot, uh, this is going to be felt throughout the entire economy and felt substantially through the entire economy. And that's going to be with us, I think, again, not just for days or weeks, but probably for months. And I think that's the reality we're facing. Let me ask you a political question off that. We had uh, Joe Trippi on the pod yesterday saying he likely does not think the conventions are going to be able to uh, take place this summer. Uh, you're a top advisor uh, to the Biden campaign. As you look at uh, the summer right now, are you giving thought to virtual conventions, to uh, some other alternative way for uh, the Democrats to uh, nominate your candidate, Joe Biden? Well, so I'm not involved in convention planning. I certainly uh, hope the DNC is thinking about uh, all options because we just don't know. We, we don't know yet. And I don't know what the necessary timeline to make this decision would be in terms of the logistics of changing everything. Uh, I think there's a good chance the disease will abate by July uh, when the convention is supposed to be. But that decision may have to be made far enough in advance that we won't really know. And even if the disease has abated, whether or not you want to put tens of thousands of people together in a small space may be a whole other question. So uh, I haven't been involved in that. I don't know what the thinking of the DNC is on it. I'm sure they're giving thought to this because, you know, everyone's rethinking everything right now. But I don't know where that'll come out. Ron, I'm sure uh, we're going to have a couple of other political questions for you. But before we get to that, you've mentioned now a couple of times that the 
testing, the very slow rollout of the testing was sort of the big screw up and with huge consequences. I have spent a lot of time trying to understand why this happened. I think the American people may not be a time for recriminations, but I think it's important that they understand um, how this happened so that it never happens again. I don't understand why the CDC refused to accept the WHO approved test, why we did not engage the private sector uh, faster. There are a lot of other countries out there who have dealt with this problem much more effectively than we have, who are not as advanced as we are. What is your understanding of this huge debacle? So let's start with the point that this isn't about recriminations. This is still about an ongoing disaster. The testing problem has not been fixed. The testing problem has not been fixed. The testing problem has not been fixed. I mean, it's not just that we were promised a million tests three weeks ago, and we're still at probably fewer than 100,000. It's not just that we were promised 1.4 million tests last week, and we're still at fewer than 100,000. It's that even as we are talking today, we are still at fewer than 100,000. And as I talk to governor's offices around the country, They are telling me in major states, the public health labs still are measuring their testing capacity in hundreds, not even thousands, let alone millions. And the places that have tests don't have the reagent chemicals to finish the test. The labs themselves are backed up. So we've asked what's wrong with the testing problem. This isn't just a question of pointing fingers about what happened in January. It's It's a reality that if you think you have this virus today, you cannot get a test unless you're an NBA player or a movie star or a member of Congress. Okay? That is the reality of where we are today. Now, how did we get there and what can we do about it? Well, how we got there is a series of mistakes and decisions that I think aren't fully understood, Dan, as you said. We don't really know who made the decision uh, not to use the WHO test. We heard this week Ambassador Burks say, who was not around when this decision was made, so we don't know who told her this, say, oh, the WHA test wasn't adopted because it creates a lot of false positives. And yet it's being used in virtually every other country in the world where they're doing a better job of controlling this disease than we are. So I'm not sure what that explanation proves. And then once we made a decision to go our own way on the testing, who at the CDC made the decisions that led to the first test being faulty and having to start over again. And then the infighting between the CDC and the FDA over approval of tests. And in the end, not to be political about this, but Harry Truman is right. The buck stops in one place and it stops on the president's desk. And as all this was unfolding in January, in February, President Trump resisted the demands that he put someone in charge at the White House. He first had no one in charge at all. And then he put Alex Azar in charge in just one cabinet department. It wasn't really till late February when he finally put Vice President Pence in charge. We had someone in the White House in charge. And even then, we now still have a lot of confusion at the White House with Jared Kushner running a task force that's trying to get the private sector testing going, even as the public sector testing can't get the supplies, can't get the reagents, can't get the chemicals. So this is still an ongoing mess. It needs organization, it needs direction, and it needs prioritization. And finally, what it needs really is accountability. We don't really know how many people are being tested each day. We don't know where the gaps are. That's not being reported by the Centers for Disease Control on a real-time basis. And you can't fix a problem if you can't measure a problem. As uh, Dan mentioned, Ron, you were the uh, 
Ebola czar uh, in the previous administration. At what point did it become clear to you that this was a really serious matter that was not getting the attention it deserved? And did you contact anybody, speak out, say something about here's what needs to be done? Uh, so, yes, I mean, I think it was pretty clear to many of us in January that this was a big problem. I wrote a big op-ed in the Washington Post uh, the third week in January, kind of laying out some of the things that needed to be done that weren't being done, including saying then, over two months ago, that there needed to be a single coordinator in the White House. I testified before Congress in February, again, making the same call, that there needed to be a single coordinator in the White House, that there needed to be better organization, there needed to be action. I, at that time, I urged the administration to send a funding bill to Capitol Hill. They hadn't. I urged the Congress to do a bunch of things that they finally got on. So I think all of us who've been around this uh, saw this coming, uh, called it out publicly, and urged the administration to take action. It's not just that the administration didn't take action. That would be bad enough. But the President of the United States, until a few days ago, was up there saying this isn't a problem. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, he said, uh, there are only 15 cases. They're all going away that the travel restrictions on China had sealed the country up tight. So the inaction at the White House is inexcusable, but the deliberate effort to minimize the problem, the deliberate effort to collapse the problem, that's beyond inexcusable. That's, that added to the problem. I will say from my experience in running one of these responses, that if you have a president who's on top of it and who's demanding action, it is difficult to get the bureaucracy to do the right thing, but possible. If you have a president saying to people, this isn't a problem, if you have a president sidelining scientists who speak out and say it's a problem, as this president did, then it is absolutely impossible to get the bureaucracy to get the right, do the right thing because inertia is the default setting. And when you add to that inertia, a discouragement of action, a suppression of truth, you are going to go from inaction to even what's worse than inaction. And that's what we saw here. There is this sort of uh, question about how much you want to politicize a crisis, a national public health emergency. Uh, you're obviously um, taking the gloves off uh, and, uh, and giving your very strong critique of how the Trump White House handled this. But as a top advisor to Joe Biden, is there is now the time to go after the president on all fronts on this? Is there any concern that uh, undercutting the White House at a time of a national emergency could make things worse and create greater confusion for the public. So let's be clear. I'm not politicizing this. Let me start by saying I've said many times in public, there are Republican governors like Mike DeWine in Ohio, like Larry Hogan in Maryland, like Charlie Baker in Massachusetts and others who are doing a fantastic job of handling this. This is not a partisan issue. Republican governors Democratic governors are stepping up to lead. There are Republican members of the Congress who also have done a great job in helping to move this aid through the Congress. Calling out the Trump administration failures is not politicizing it. It is a demand for action to save lives. And asking them, demanding that they do things differently, is an urgent public health necessity. I'm not talking about political accountability here. I'm talking about 
saying that what they are doing is wrong and it needs to change, and it needs to change right now. As I said a minute ago, the problem with testing is not just bad decisions in January and February. It's a lack of action in March right now. It's things happening right now. And if we don't call them out, I don't know how anything is going to change. So this is not a partisan issue. This is not a political issue. But we just can't sit by and say, Trump's doing a great job. It's all working. Don't pay any attention to the fact that, that the CDC this week told doctors that they should use bandanas as masks in American hospitals because we could not get them masks to treat patients. That is not a political observation. That is an observation of a failed system that is not keeping us safe. I think clearly there's a kind of a growing consensus out there that the president has underplayed the nature of this threat, uh, talking about how it's going to just wash through and everyone's going to be fine. In public health, clear communications is incredibly important and making sure that people really get the message. And I wonder if our public health officials and governors and others haven't actually gone far enough to counteract the message that Trump has been giving, which is to say, I sometimes, not from you, because I hear the urgency in your voice, but I have some, it, to some degree, sense a reluctance from a lot of people to sort of state clearly and with that kind of urgency how dire a situation we're in. You know, we read stories that say there could be up to, you know, from one to 2.2 million deaths. I mean, that's the kind of thing that gets people attention. You don't hear people saying that a lot. Now, I know there must be a, a balance between giving people kind of very direct, undiluted, actionable information and instilling, you know, a kind of a fear in them that can cause panic. But do you think people are being direct enough and urgent enough in how they're talking about this? One last thing I want to say on this, I took a run through the park yesterday, Prospect Park here in Brooklyn, stayed very far away from everybody. But the playground was filled with kids climbing all over the jungle gym with their parents there. So is it denial? I mean, what's going on? So I think there are a bunch of great questions there, Dan. And uh, let's try to unpack it a little bit. So I think that some of the governors really have done a superb job. And again, not partisan. Uh, Mike DeWine, I spent 2018 working very hard for Rich Cordray, who was running against Mike DeWine. There's no one who worked harder to try to keep Mike DeWine from being governor of Ohio. And I can tell you, he's doing a great job on this. And Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan as well. But I think of all the governors, your governor, Dan, Andrew Cuomo, has really been at the forefront of this, ordering his state to conduct tests even before the federal government approved tests and was still dragging its feet. And, you know, sending clear messages about closing things down and, and taking strong actions and trying to work as much as he can with the Trump administration. I saw Governor Cuomo praise President Trump the other day for some of the things that are going right as, as he should. So I think that uh, the governors are leading here uh, because the federal government is not, but there are 50 of them and they're all not going to act at the same pace and with the same intensity. They're all not going to have the same perspectives and the same point of view. And so you get this unevenness. And I, I think that eventually, you know, hopefully everyone will catch up and that's, that's a challenge though. I mean, I think that's one of the things about our system that's a strength and a weakness. You compare our, how this response works in the U.S. And I saw this during Ebola. We had fewer, obviously much fewer cases domestically, much less of a problem domestically, but we still had domestic issues. And I compare our country all the time to other countries. And in the U.K., 
where almost all the power is at the national level. The healthcare system is run by the, the national government. There's complete, almost complete power in London. You know, it's one country, one decision, one authority, one implementation. In the United States, you know, we have important local officials and important state officials. We saw in New York, the mayor of New York and the governor of New York at odds on different issues and that playing out in public. And we obviously have the gov 50 governors and states and federal things. And that's just an inherent quality of our system. And I think, and I think that has strengths and weaknesses. One weakness is a lack of consistency and a lack of central control. And we're seeing some of the price of that. One strength, frankly, is that even when the federal government lets us down, in at least some states, state governments are doing a better job. And those people are going to be safer because their governors did better than Washington did. So I, I think that's just the reality of how we're different in America. To the playgrounds, just for a second. You know, I've had the same thing, Dan. I, I live in, in Maryland. And Dan, I actually was uh, the other day by your the elementary school you went to, Chevy Chase Elementary <laughs> School, uh, near my house, where Darren Clydman went to elementary school. <laughs> Is there a plaque there, Ron, for that? Uh, I think there's a giant plaque someplace, Mike. <laughs> okay. By the way, pre president of the student council, just in case, you know, about my early days in politics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they need your leadership there now, Dan. Because in fact, uh, it is a closed school. And I went by there just uh, yesterday, and the, the playground was filled with kids playing basketball, all on top of each other, you know, playing basketball, and obviously not social distancing. And, and we see this time and again. You know, we live with this in Ebola in West Africa. Uh, in the West African nations, they closed a lot of the schools, and they found it didn't slow the spread of the disease. In some communities, it actually sped up the spread of the disease because the kids were just running around everywhere. They were going everywhere. You know, they weren't even kind of organized during the day. And so, you know, that's a real challenge. If we are going to do these things, we all need to do these things. And as painful as it is to keep the kids at home, we need to do that. Uh, closing the schools and having the kids all hang out together isn't going to slow the transmission of the disease. And, uh, and that's a problem. Look, you know, Mike raised this point earlier. How long can we put up with this? How long can we endure this? And that, you know, that this is a social science experiment with life or death consequences that we are running in real time in the United States. I think if you look historically, usually the virus is more patient than people. And usually what happens is that eventually populations get tired of these kinds of controls. They start to come out. They start to cheat on them, disobey them. And whatever you've done to tamp down the virus, it starts to flame back up. Now, even if that happens, tamping down the virus to avoid crushing our healthcare system is a good thing. But it's like everything else in life. The more we're controlled and measured, the better off we'll be. We won't be perfect. We're people. But the better we do, the better we'll do. Ron, how are you practicing social distancing? Are you going out of the house? Are you having friends over? Are you um, interacting with others, including uh, your colleagues in the Biden campaign? So I'm trying to leave the house as little as possible. Uh, like everyone else, I've had to go to the grocery store and to drugstore to pick up things. I'm trying to do as much as I can from home. The Biden campaign uh, has uh, shut down its offices or shut down our field organizing. We're doing all of our meetings whenever possible virtually. So we're you know, trying very, very hard to minimize our interactions uh, on a personal level and on a societal level. And you know, I think that's, that's really important. And when I'm out of the house, I try to be really careful about keeping distance from people. 
Um, look, I will say one thing. Even when you're practicing good social distancing, you are allowed to leave your home. It's just stay away from people. So go out for a walk, go out for a jog, you know, just stay away from other people. And so this isn't house arrest and you'll have to do what you have to do. I mean, there is definitely risk every time you go to the grocery store, every time you go to the drugstore, but, you know, try to find ways to minimize that. What I would say about just as a, a little note of safety here in deliveries, it's safe to have things delivered. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that the virus does not live very long on cardboard. So if you're getting boxes delivered, you know, food, food delivered, the risk that the virus is on the stuff that's being delivered is very, very low. But the delivery person is another human being. And so you'll want to keep your distance when the delivery person comes to the door, both to protect yourself and to protect him or her. Uh, this isn't just only about protecting ourselves, it's about protecting others. Ron, you praised uh, Mike DeWine before. Was he right to uh, postpone the Ohio primary this week? You know, I think that that decision was one I would criticize a little bit, at least. And what I was particularly criticized about it is that he made it over uh, a court order. And so if Governor DeWine had some reason to cancel this election, uh, if that was the best advice he was getting, he should have gone to court, gotten a court order. In fact, he went to court and lost a court order. And instead of appealing that to the Ohio Supreme Court and letting the Ohio Supreme Court decide on the facts and the evidence, he simply ordered a shutdown of the election. That bothers me. That bothers me as a matter of process. I'm bothered less by whether or not someone comes to the conclusion that something can and can't be done safely. I'm bothered by any time someone says, I don't care what the courts say, I'm going to do this anyway. We can be a nation that's safe and still a nation of laws. And the decision to bypass the Ohio Supreme Court and just act uh, unilaterally, I think that's a decision that's does not sit well with me. You mentioned before that your your hope is that this pandemic will abate by the summertime and maybe these conventions can go on. But if that doesn't happen, let me just ask you a hypothetical. I think people don't generally expect it's going to go deep into the fall, although it could come back. It could come roaring back. So if that happens, you know, there's already you hear people speculating about what the implications of that are for the presidential election in terms of voter turnout, in terms of, you know, would Trump maybe call to delay the election, which has a lot of people, I think, very nervous. One solution to this, and we had, uh, I think, Joe Trippi on the podcast yesterday who was talking about this, was that uh, every state go to absentee voting. Right now, there are only 27. That means that state le- the rest of the state legislatures will have to do that. Is that something you think we should be organizing around right now? And is it something that you think that uh, Vice President Biden will get involved in and help lead? Well, you know, the vice president's always supported more liberal access to voting and always supported uh, more availability of early voting, mail-in voting, vote by mail in particular. And so this is a good example of why we need that. You know, they had vote by mail in Florida. It's very interesting, right? Florida went forward with its primary the day that Ohio did not. And what happened? More votes were cast in Florida in this pandemic in 2020 than were cast in 2016. The vote actually went up in 2020. Why? Because most people mailed in their ballots in advance and didn't have to go to the polling place. So it's a good example of how we can have democracy and robust turnout in a democracy even in the middle of a pandemic, if we make it possible for people to mail in their votes. And I hope that the state legislatures will do this. For the federal election, for the presidential election, Congress can mandate the availability of mail-in ballots. I hope they'll, I know people on Capitol Hill are talking about that as a possible measure. 
there is the, uh, the election date in November is set by federal statute. President Trump cannot delay the election. He cannot postpone the election. He cannot stop the election. But we can take steps to make sure that voters can vote safely no matter what's going on by letting them vote by mail. Uh, it's As you said, it's true in about half the states for more than half the country in terms of where people live. Uh, everyone should have that option. It's now pretty clear that Biden is going to be the nominee. Uh, there are reports today that the Biden campaign is talking to senior people in the uh, Sanders campaign about getting him to drop out. Can you shed any light on where things stand and when you expect Bernie Sanders to uh, to get out of the race, if he's going to get out of the race? Well, look, I think that's Senator Sanders' decision. He has uh, run a very strong campaign uh, now twice. He has millions of supporters. He's raised money from more donors than any person in American political history. And he's earned the right to continue on in whatever fashion he wants to continue on. I do think the math is pretty clear that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And I think the sooner we unite as a party to take on Donald Trump, the better. But that's a decision for Senator Sanders and the supporters to make, and uh, not one that I, as a Joe Biden person, should be weighing in on. But you don't think, Ron, that um, given that we're in this this national uh, emergency, a, a, a real crisis, that there is an added reason for, for uh, Sanders to get out and to unify the party? Look, again, I think that's a decision for Senator Sanders to make. And I think, you know, among the things Senator Sanders is doing is doing some really important work on responding to that and coming forward with some interesting ideas on this, the economic issues we discussed earlier in this conversation. And so, you know, uh, he, he should be focused on that and not on the campaign if he doesn't want to be. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that it's really important that we respect Sanders Sanders decision-making process here. Uh, we, uh, I, I'm, I am grateful as a citizen that he is working so hard on this response uh, that that's where his focus is on trying to get help to people who need it, on making sure this doesn't become an excuse for wasteful corporate bailouts, the kinds of things that Senator Sanders has always fought for. Uh, I want to see him continue that fight. Uh, obviously, as a Biden person, I want to see him continue that fight in the Senate and let Joe Biden go fight in the White House. But look, I think the timing and the nature with which these campaigns come together and which we take on Donald Trump, that's up to Senator Sanders. Uh, what I know is that he has said from the start that he will support the Democratic nominee and his voice and his supporters are going to be critical to Joe Biden beating Donald Trump this fall. Uh, one uh, a political issue that's also a national security issue here is China. And it's been very clear, especially over the last week, as the uh, Trump White House has finally decided to take this seriously, that they're putting a lot of blame on the Chinese for not being more forthcoming about what they knew about the spread of the virus. Uh, the president is openly calling it uh, the, a, a China virus, Wuhan virus. As you look at the way the Chinese have handled this. Uh, is there legitimacy to some of the critique we're hearing from the White House? And how is the Biden campaign planning to talk about China and the Chinese role in this? Let's be very clear. Uh, I've been very critical of the Chinese from the start. Joe Biden has been very critical of the Chinese from the start. You know who hasn't been critical of the Chinese? Donald Trump. On January 24th, Donald Trump tweeted that the Chinese were doing a great job, that they were transparent, that they were controlling the virus, and that he was grateful to President Xi for his leadership. So when it mattered, 
in January, when we, when, when Vice President Biden was calling on the Chinese to let American scientists into China to study this virus and to figure out what was going on, and the Chinese were refusing that request, President Trump was slathering the praise on President Xi, even as President Xi was denying access of our scientists to the data. So now that this has gone out of control, now when it's too late, President Trump all of a sudden has found his voice and is blaming China. So let's be clear. Uh, China's responsible for the mistakes they made in handling this. But President Trump praised those mistakes. He praised the president of China. He claimed the Chinese were transparent at the very moment when we could have saved American lives by pressing against China. So uh, if anyone owns the China issue in this campaign, it's Donald Trump and it's his handling of this response. Is it okay to call this a China virus or Wuhan virus? Uh, I think early on, people called it the Wuhan virus. I myself uh, did that early on. I think that, but I think as this developed, I think we got more aware of the fact that that is not the right way to do it. It certainly shouldn't be called the China virus. That's just an effort to make this kind of political and discriminatory. And I think that it's important, uh, and I've also been saying this for months, that public officials speak out against anti-Chinese American discrimination that we're seeing in this country, bullying, hate attacks, uh, that we show our support for the Chinese-American community in this country. When the president just stands there and calls it a China virus now, after having let the Chinese government off the hook two months ago, all he's doing is stirring racism. He's not fighting the disease. And that's not helping us. It's also for people to understand that this virus strikes everyone. Chinese Americans are no more likely to carry it and spread it than anyone else. That's just racism. Ron, just uh, as we're winding down here, one more uh, kind of prescriptive uh, question, which is, as someone who uh, ran the White House response to a, uh, a health emergency uh, as the Ebola czar, I wonder if going forward, if you've begun to think about the kinds of things that the federal government can and should be doing so that there is a kind of an emergency response plan in place that was easily handed off from administration to administration. Some of these things you may have already done. I'd like to hear about that. But in terms of all the things that we need to do in the event of future outbreaks, you know, protocols for ramping up fast testing, for getting emergency uh, supplies out there quickly, a national stockpile uh, of ventilators, a national policy on quarantines. What needs to be done going forward? What have you learned from the failures in the response to this pandemic? So look, we learned a lot of lessons from Ebola. And one of the lessons that we learned was that we need to be prepared for the next one. And so when I stepped down, once we got the Ebola epidemic in West Africa under control in the spring of 2015, and I stepped down, I recommended to the president, the vice president, that they create a permanent office in the White House to be in charge of pandemic prevention and response. And in the fall of 2015, they did that. They created the Global Health Security Directorate in the National Security Council. They put a, a great professional named Beth Cameron in charge of that office to make the kinds of plans to face this kind of thing. Uh, anyone who's been in this field knew this day was coming. We didn't know when and where, we knew it was coming. And President Obama put in place a structure to plan for it. When Donald Trump took over, he kept that structure. It's important, again, this isn't a partisan thing. Trump kept the structure and he brought a person in, Admiral Tim Zimmer, who had been a, a senior disease fighting expert in the Bush administration and put him in charge of this office. And that stayed until the day 
John Bolton took over the National Security Council. And John Bolton disbanded the unit, sent Admiral Zimmer back to the State Department, uh, took a couple people out of the unit and put them in a bioterrorism fighting unit at the at NSC, but got rid of the pandemic preparation and response unit. And he said, basically, you know, this is a healthcare problem. It's not a national security problem. Let HHS fight it. We shouldn't think about this as a national security. So we need to shrink the NSC. And there is no question in my mind that we were less prepared for this and responded less quickly because there was no one at the White House after the summer of 2018 in charge of preparing for and planning for this response. And that's a decision now that President Trump says he takes no responsibility for, even though it was made by his national security advisor, even though it was publicly criticized at the time. I wrote a piece the day this decision came down saying it was the wrong decision, saying we pay a price for it back in 2018. And a couple of weeks ago, when Trump was first asked about it before he disclaimed responsibility, he said it was a big waste of money and we could get experts back anytime we wanted them. So we made the president made a conscious decision with John Bolton to de-prepare the country from where we were and to disband the unit that was getting us ready. I should point out that uh, John Bolton's book was originally supposed to be released this week. Uh, it's now been delayed at least a couple of months, and uh, a lot of us are going to be wondering uh, if he uh, addresses this issue uh, as well as everything else he planned to address uh, in the book. But, uh, Ron, this has been a great discussion. We really appreciate you giving us the time and your insights, and um, stay safe, and we definitely hope to have you back. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much, Ron. Yep. Stay safe. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mike. All right. You too. Thanks to former Obama administration official and longtime Democratic strategist Ron Klain for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.